Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. The children hoped the day would be fine. They woke early and jumped out of bed. Hang on a minute. I need another cushion. They pulled their curtains open and looked out. The sky was as blue as cornflowers. The sun shone between the trees and the shadows lay long and dewy on the grass. The enchanted wood stood dark and mysterious behind their garden. You should definitely read to your child because it will influence them to do it on their own. And when you get them to read their first book, like my parents did, really praise them because it's their first book they've read on their own and it's just a big, big thing. <laughs> That's Ben, aged ten. I wonder if there's any connection between his bedtime story and this read so expertly by Simon Callow. One up with his shores salter, the dropped of March hath pierced to the rector, and bathed every vein in switch liquor, of which virtue engendered is the floor. One Zephyrus ache with his sweater breath, and spirit hath in every halt and Mr. Callow, reading the Canterbury Tales, a work made at a time when the only way most people could experience literature was by having it read aloud to them. Great is the sin of disobedience to parents. Honour thy father and mother. He that curseth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. That is a species of wickedness that common sin durst not meddle with. It brings fearful guilt and fearful woes. On long winter nights, which are rather common in Scotland, Robert Louis Stevenson's nurse would read him Calvinist tracts, ghost stories, religious hymns, Scottish romances, all of which eventually found their way into his fiction. Reading aloud and being read to can be a deeply affecting and life-changing business. Suddenly, as the child rolled downward on its mother's knees, all wet with snow, its eyes were caught by a bright, glancing light. OK, let's stop there and just see what people make of that. Thank you. Lovely, lovely reading. We've only just started reading this, but I'm finding the stories quite, like, addictive. I'm thinking, I want to know more of it. In fact, for some, reading aloud is more than an entertainment or even an education. For Jane Davies, who runs the Liverpool-based reader organisation, it's a mission. We work with all kinds of people, so it might be people in a dementia care home or it might be children um, in foster placements or in ordinary schools. It could be people with drug and alcohol um, addictions in prisons. Um, we work in Broadmoor, we work in Ashworth. So lots and lots of different kinds of people. We work in boardrooms, we work with, with people at work. Where people are, we go <laughs> and take books. There's little doubt that any education secretary worth his or her salt would immediately make it a criminal offence for parents or guardians not to read nightly to the under-sevens. John Mullen is Professor of English at University College London and something of an expert in the field of the history of reading. John Mullen, were you read to by your parents? 
I, I was. But it's interesting listening to Ben at the beginning of the programme because he, age 10, was saying that <laughs> parents had a duty. And I think my parents belonged to a different generation. Once I could read, my mother stopped reading to me. I mean, it was a prelude to my taking over, I think. Uh, so do you have children? I do, I do. And my 10-year-old, like Ben on our recording, still certainly thinks it's a parental duty to read and has heard things on the radio saying that it's a parental duty. And there's a bit of a sort of, perhaps there's a virtuous loop there that a generation of children think that their parents, Johnny Welsh, should still be doing it well into their teens. I mean, it's quite interesting. We started with the radio and listened with mother. But in some ways, it was the radio which sort of elbowed aside the family reader. Because once upon a time, it was absolutely normal for middle-class families to sit around and hear one of the adults read to them. This is Argentinian-born writer Alberto Mangel talking here appropriately to Open Book on Radio 4 and reminding us that for over a third of our 21 centuries, all reading was allowed. Silent reading did not become common until the 9th century. In the libraries of Greece and Rome, we suspect that there must have been a continuing rumble going on. No shushing? Were all the librarians on strike? Because the writing was attached, no spaces, all capitals, no punctuation marks, in order to understand the text that you were reading for the first time, you would have to read it out loud. Not read it out loud in order for someone else to understand it, but for yourself to understand it. There would be a sort of mumble. I imagine it was something like what goes on in the Quranic schools today or the Talmudic schools today, where the reader reads in a kind of sing-song the words that come in through the eyes so that no element of the sacred text is lost. So you, you hold the book, you touch it, you inhale the perfume, you rock with your body to the rhythm of the words, and you say them so that the ear can capture them. It would be tempting to link this ancient reverence for the practice of public reading and sharing of texts with our group from Liverpool who see reading aloud as part of a more modern, civilising process. Jane Davis. I think it's a very democratic form in that it doesn't matter what stage of literacy you are at. You could be a, an absolute whiz and able to read Churchill's account of the Second World War easily, or you could be an, someone who is barely literate. But you can sit in a room and listen to a great book, um, as we've just been reading Silas Marner, and almost everybody will begin to get something out of that. The sentences are tough, uh, the syntax is hard, you can't tell what's going to happen next in the sentence. But voice carries that for people. Alberto Mangel can produce evidence of an early book group, Roman no less, which also tackled tough texts. We have wonderful reports about this in the letters of Pliny the Younger, where not only does he talk about the equivalent of a Victorian drawing room performance... If you were writ, you would build a small theatre in your house and have your friends come and read out not only for a few hours, but sometimes for days on end. But sometimes, and it is again Pliny who tells us this, the reader wasn't very good, and so 
Pliny himself suggests in a letter that since he has a slave who is a very good reader, he would put the slave behind a curtain and Pliny himself would stand in front of it and do a kind of lip sync to the reading. That is perhaps one of the first lip syncs in history. Just like the denouement of Singing in the Rain, and I bet Pliny didn't get the flack Beyoncé got when she synced along to the star-spangled banner at President Obama's inauguration. Professor John Mullen, we gather that silent reading, which is now considered the only way to read, if you're in public at least, came late to the party. Yes, it did, and and there's an extraordinary description in a very famous and influential book, uh, St Augustine's Confessions, from the 4th century AD, where St Augustine's saying how he went to see um, this great learned holy man, St Ambrose, in Milan, and everybody was amazed, not just St Augustine, by Ambrose, because you would find him in the church reading, but he was reading silently, and sort of nobody had seen this before. And he was a kind of prodigy. And it's a, it's a wonderful sort of indication of, of how normally people read aloud. And Augustine uses this extraordinary phrase. He said he was exploring it with his heart. And that's a new idea, clearly, to St. Augustine, very educated, very learned man already when he writes this, that that there was a different way of reading which didn't involve making a noise. Well, yes, there's an old joke, um, uh, which is that if you can read the New York Times without moving your lips, then you're a communist. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, it's obviously entered the culture now, and moving your lips is something that would be unpleasantly sneered at. But when you first learn to read, of course you move your lips, don't you? You try and make the shapes. And the relationship between sound and meaning in our culture is very strong. But there's some indication, I think, that reading silently comes to acquire a kind of status. Mm -hmm. So I think we we know that by around the 10th century, monks in scriptoria Mm -hmm. were banned from making a noise as if that was something only a lower kind of reader. And if you were an educated person, you wouldn't do that. Yes, I think reading silently, as we now all do, as if it's naturally, comes to be learned as a sort of an educated way of reading. And, and, and I think also later on, there's a strong connection between silent reading and Protestantism, actually, <laughs> because <laughs> in the age of kind of Luther and Calvin silent reading on your own acquires a kind of great spiritual significance. We had um, Simon Callow there reading um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and that, of course, was written really for very special people, Richard II in his case, and I wonder if in the mid-15th century the invention of printing made a difference. Gutenberg was born in roughly 1400, which is roughly when Chaucer died, so... And did that create a, a huge group of new literate people or was it rather slow to grow? I think printing didn't suddenly make everybody literate. But I think that it made what reading was a different kind of experience, even from the few who could do it. You know, there's a famous image on one of Chaucer's manuscripts of him reading aloud, as it were, in a sort of premonition of the literary festival there is the author and Canterbury Tales his most famous work catches this idea that a story is something that somebody does in their own voice and he tale is a telling a tale is a telling and I think that once you have print and you have a text which is mechanically reproduced in even in 
relatively small quantities, it becomes something different. It no longer has, as it were, the grain of the author in it in the same way. I mean, in the in the early days of print, there would still be people who would perform and sell ballads, for instance, and largely for audiences that couldn't read. So, I mean, the status of, of somebody who can read aloud and who's good at reading aloud survives the invention of printing mainly because there's still lots of people who are illiterate. Yes. I wonder, is it the case that some books are better read aloud and others imbibed silently? Alberto Mangel. Reading out loud can enhance the enjoyment of the text because it brings to the surface the music of the text, the sense of the text. On the other hand, I think that it imposes a certain rhythm that detracts from the concentration that you might want for a certain text. And some seem to have been written only to be read out loud. I would say that Joyce's Ulysses is a wonderful book to read out loud because the difficulties that seem to be there on the page for the common reader evaporate once you pronounce the words and share in the dialogue and the action with the person to whom you're reading the text. Nowadays, perhaps, we're spoiled for choice uh, with physical books, e-books and audiobooks, and there's something even more magical on the horizon. Lawrence Howell of Audible. The latest technological innovation is WhisperSync for voice, the ability to sync between your ebook and your audio. The idea is that you're in the train and you're reading on your ebook, and when the train stops and you're out in the station, you close your ebook, you pick up your audio app, and it takes off exactly where you're finished reading, enable you to still enjoy your book. This technology, unfortunately, is only available in America at the moment, but we hope to have it available in the UK soon. It's had a fantastic response in America. Most of the uh, audiobook listeners are heavy book buyers. They like to listen, they like to read, and this technology enables them to read even more. They don't have to wait until they go back home and pick up their book in bed. They can now listen to their you know, title almost anywhere. Although technology always changes the way we can deal with language, it doesn't mean we have to. The oral tradition lived on long after the printing revolution, after all. John Mullen, you, you've got a special interest, I believe, in, in Jane Austen. I do. I do. <laughs> I am her vicar upon earth. <laughs> um, and Jane Austen, of course, in her novels, people read aloud. And, and indeed, it's so natural an activity that often when Austen says that characters in Northanger Abbey, she says Catherine Morland and the ghastly Isabella Thorpe <laughs> read novels together. And she doesn't say they read aloud because she takes it for granted. We know that's what they did with each other. That's what people did with each other. And Jane Austen, that's what she did in her family. She sort of road tested her novels on members of her family by reading it aloud. And one of her nieces gave an account of hearing the first draft of Pride and Prejudice read aloud by Aunt Jane. Characters like Henry Crawford, for example, in yes. Mansfield Park, you can almost judge by the way they boast about their ability to read and things. When I mean, this is a bit where he talks about what a good vicar he would have made. Yes, of course, the vicar is the person who is good at reading. Jane Austen's dad was a vicar. He was good at reading aloud. Mr Collins, when he arrives at Longbourn, is invited to read and starts back in horror when he's invited to read a novel and insists on a book of moral <laughs> instruction. Mr Elton, the vicar in Emma, reads aloud to Emma and the stupendously stupid Harriet Smith as Emma does her picture 
Um, Henry Tilney, another vicar in Northanger Abbey, reads The Mistress of Udolpha aloud to his sister. And then a sort of wonderful thing of the difference between reading aloud and reading to yourself. He gets caught up in it and he sneaks off with the book on his own yes. and completes it in private and his sister is very cross about this because he was supposed to be sharing it with her. Yeah, so reading aloud is a skill yeah. and one which is sort of admired and valued. And we come later to the sort of giants like Tennyson, for example, who just about lived to the recording age. Yes, um, yes. Uh, so we begin to get a sense of how they performed. And none greater in this regard, of course, than Charles Dickens, always a performer. Towards the, uh, the latter part of his career, he was very known for, for going on tours in which he caused women to scream. Yes, he was like a pop star, and these tours that he did are absolutely exhausting, sort of provincial tours, it's like sort of status quo going around the sort of the halls of Britain. And... Um, he made lots of money and he honed passages of his books. Yes. And usually the piece de resistance became Bill Sykes's killing of Nancy. Apparently people used to sort of topple over into the aisle <laughs> when he did this. He, he was cashing in on his fame because, yes. as you say, it's quite late in his career, but hugely popular. And, yes. and he loved seeing people weeping, people fainting, people with their mouths open in amazement, people roaring with laughter... You know, that was his kick. He felt yeah. that was his closest relationship yeah. with the effect of and his books. Always, even before he started being a public reader and reciter of his own works, you can tell from the texts that he was a very oratorical yes, writer. Absolutely. I mean, the opening of Bleak House is pure oratory, isn't it? I mean, all, a lot of his offences against polite English, those wonderful creative offences, you know, using the word very over and over again yes. in the same yes. sentence... Yes. As soon as it's read aloud, it all makes sense. And, of course, he wrote to be read aloud. Before he performed, he already was thinking about reading aloud. One of the great things about Dickens, which actually I think, funnily enough, Jane Austen, in a different way, was also brilliant at, was different voices, idiolects for the characters. And Jane Austen said once about her mother reading aloud one of her novels, she doesn't do it right, she doesn't differentiate enough between the voices. And Dickens, of course fantastic voices where people say things which on the page sometimes you think can somebody use the word humble that often surely yes. not but as soon as it's read aloud very humble master copperfield very humble and of course it's a lot to do with the way he published his books in installments a character had to come back in and as it were as soon as we heard them we would think oh yes Mm -hmm. Ah, yes, that one. Mm -hmm. So he was thinking about reading aloud all the time he was writing. He, he also knew that uh, not just in Britain but in America there would be the Alcotts and the James families tell stories of how they would, they would sit and their parents and all the New England literary set would read out the latest episode from Dickens and, yes. and they would be you know, astounded. And now here we are in the 21st century and there are all kinds of ways for writers to get their works heard and to read them, one of the most common seems to be a proliferating genre, is the literary festival. Cheltenham, Hay on Wye, so many of them. And their writers go and they read their works and they, they do the infamous Q 
Q&A, the, the question-answer yes. session. Do you have a view about that? Well, I, I think it must be a bit stressful for, for authors now because um, for quite a long time it, it, that didn't seem, despite the Dickensian precedent, to be a duty of, a, of an author. And now it seems to be, and, uh, and the publishers obviously want them to do it and the agents want them to do it, it's an expectation that somebody should be able to read their work well. And there have been notoriously lots of great writers in history who are not very good. Yeah. And, of course, you know, lots of people will say that, that actors are better. But I have to say, although that I think this duty seems a little bit unfair and seems a rather peculiar expectation of sort of the modern fan of fiction in particular, sometimes you hear it done well and you do think, my gosh, no actor can do it. Yeah. I, I mean, to give you an idea, I heard recently, um, I was at a British Council thing in, in Berlin and Howard Jacobson, whose novels I've always enjoyed, read the opening chapter of his most recent novel, Zoo Time. It was hilarious. I'd read this chapter and I'd enjoyed it, but hearing the author do it, and obviously an author who enjoys performing in this case, really made a big difference. And it made a difference to what I thought of the book as well. So, you know, I, 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 I shouldn't be too cynical about no, this requirement. I, I, at the risk of losing my equity card, uh, um, a lot of actors, myself possibly included, uh, overread. I think the, the key is to let the... the the character, the sound, live in the audience's mind, but not the performance. Yes. Uh, John le Carre is a wonderful reader of his um, superb spy fiction. He has a kind of authority, a gravity. Again, he doesn't overdo it. I think he reads all of his. I don't know if anybody else would dare while he's alive. <laughs> he's well, terrific. I think this reading, I mean, you must know, because you've done both. Reading aloud is different from acting, isn't it? Yes. Acting, generally speaking, you get a part, you get a voice, you get a character, you've mm. got to do that. Reading aloud I know very much from when, you know, you're sitting in a seminar room and you might ask a student to read aloud a passage from a novel. Yes. You've got to understand what's going on. It's no good just understanding Mrs. Bennett. <laughs> you've got to understand Mr. Bennett and Lydia Bennett and the whole lot. And you've got to understand what the narrator is doing. And you've got to move from one to another. Yes. And I mean, in some ways, that seems much harder than just acting a part, actually. Back to Liverpool for more from our amateur readers of Silas Marner. It was a sleeping child, a round fur thing with soft yellow rings all over its head. Could this be his little sister come back to him in a dream? Was this the first thought that darted across Silas's blank wonderment? Was it a dream? My name's Damien. I've spent my life with undiagnosed bipolar and I've ended up many times in hospital with suicide and eventually I come here and for the first time it was like a bright light shining in the darkness of the years of hell I've been through and I love the reading and, and the beauty of the words and I understand it more now because my emotions seem to be more stabilised so that's why I come here. Here being the Reader Organisation, a charitable social enterprise that connects people with great literature through shared reading aloud. When you're in a group, you see things that you don't see when you're actually reading it by yourself. You miss bits, so it trains you. So when you go home and read, it trains you to spot these subtle differences that you miss. I'm not the most literary of persons, but... These, these people, the staff here, um, they just seem to have so much passion for it. And as you know, passion is, is, is addictive. So I've gone from one addiction, which was very, very bad for me, 
to another addiction now, which is far safer. But a lot of people wouldn't feel safe. Why should they, if they thought they were suddenly going to be required to perform? That's the preserve of people like, well, people like me, isn't it? My name is Louise. Um, I've always been a reader. I'm just totally addicted to it, mainly because I've got Asperger's, and if you've got Asperger's, you have a thing that you sort of cling to. I find it difficult if somebody tells me to do something. If you said, right, Louise, you've got a read out now, I find that difficult to handle. But because nobody makes you, and then it's your choice, isn't it, to read out loud, so that's what makes the difference, I think. Because when I was in primary school, I was an elective mute, so... I didn't really want us to talk to anybody, really. Even today, it'll come over me, all of a sudden, I'll get, I don't want to say anything to somebody, but I think with the reading and with the read organisation, because they take you for what you are, you know, they take me as being Louise. A lot of people will go, oh, it's Louise with the Asperger's syndrome, we don't know what she's going to say next, and she should come out with something over. And then, but they just see me as me. The idea that literature can make us emotionally stronger goes back to Plato, and the word bibliotherapy is much in vogue today. This is Jane Davis again, founder of the Reader Organisation. The fact that we share the reading and that if you want to, you can join in and take a turn seems to be fantastically good for people's confidence and sense of themselves. If people don't think of themselves as a reader or as someone who could have a voice in that way... It's a lovely thing to see somebody suddenly one week say, I think I'll read this week. It's lovely. I don't really like to think of it as therapy. And really, I suppose a very literary person would want to say, this is what literature does. Don't call it medicine. This is reading. And it's interesting that your programme is about language because I think... It was Jeanette Winterson who said, tough lives need tough language. So in the complexities of George Eliot's sentences, yes, you're getting your group therapy, but you're also getting the presence of that great mind and, and thinking. That's valuable. Mm. It is valuable, isn't it, John? Yes. And, and there's something about reading aloud, when it's done well especially, which gets the reader and therefore the listeners to sort of really attend to the patterns and perfections of the words. I mean, it's very easy when reading to oneself, in a sense, not to fall asleep, but to skip, to miss. And George Lewis, George Eliot's partner, said something very interesting about reading Jane Austen aloud. He said, when you read it aloud... You can't miss things. You actually realise how good it is. And there's a sense in which I think reading aloud kind of crystallises what the essence of a sentence, a line of poetry, a character, a voice is. You know, we take for granted that this thing we have, this language, this sound of the tongue hitting the back of our teeth and the labials and the dentals and the, <laughs> the fricatives and all these strange little things that our mouth can do, has a beauty. It can dance in our head. And when the words are the words of a, of a magician, of a great, great writer, then the rhythm and the flow and the glide of language in one's ear is a solace and a beauty that very little else can replace, wouldn't you agree? I would. I can't match your metaphors, Stephen. <laughs> there are a lot of them there. I would say, I would say yes, it, it, at its best, it, it vivifies a book. It brings it to life. And, and I think you could hear those people talking about um, <laughs> Silas Mann, George Eliot, quite quite difficult, mm. um, but hear it aloud and it lives and it breathes. A perfect metaphor itself, perhaps. It wasn't dead gold after all. It was a living child. Very good. <laughs>
Well, thank you. Thank you, Professor John Mullen, for being my guest today. And for the last word, let's turn to ten-year-old Ben. Perhaps one day a future student of yours, John. He sounds <laughs> well intelligent enough, uh, with a reminder that dads as well as mums need to take reading aloud seriously. He was very, very good at reading, and same with my mum, actually, because um, she read mostly at the start of our lives, and then Dad did it a bit later on. So that was what really got me into reading. And there's more of the discussion between John Mullen and Stephen Fry on the Radio 4 website. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Marilyn Harris. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.